Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Kate Riga, and we've got, we're still in this kind of like, you know, season of of discontent here. Uh, Got a lot of things happening now. There's kind of two or three different moving parts that we're going to talk about today, and, but they're all obviously interrelated. And one thing that happened, you know, in, in, in last week's podcast, we were talking about this whole debt ceiling thing, and we were having kind of a conversation about, uh, did McConnell blink or did he not blink and all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly it was resolved. I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday, I can't really matter. It doesn't really matter. But we, we know how that came out. And then we had the little sort of faux blow up about the mean speech that Chuck Schumer was mean. And, and, you know, I did a post about this. I think people, uh, there's a whole thing where Democrats are really, Democrats live inside the, to, to far too great a degree, live inside the DC press conventional wisdom and it, and it, and it, and it hurts them a lot. So in any case today, there's a few different things we're going to talk about. You got the January 6th committee thing, hopefully moving forward. You know, is that, is, is, a lot of Democrats, a lot of people who want us to still be a democracy, I should be a little a little more direct and 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 clear about this, are starting to get a sense of deja vu back to impeachment, both impeachments, or the whole drama about the president's tax returns, where you get a subpoena or you have a lawful right to ask something or blah 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 blah. And the Trump people just say no. And you have the the uh, Congress or whoever it is kind of, okay, what do we do now? They said no. And you go to the courts. Well, you know, we saw this with impeachment. Uh, president can basically say, or actually before impeachment, if a president wants to make all sorts of frivolous complaints and challenges, they can, president can just kick the can down the road to where nothing happens. So they don't have to win anything. They can just kind of gum it up forever. And then during the second, I mean, I lose track of the impeachments. They kind of flow together in my mind. Uh, But I, so I I guess this was actually both, but I guess it would, I guess this was actually more the first Trump impeachment where Remember back when we were in that period where the it's not it's not so much the left or the progressives, the more aggressive Democrats in Congress 
were saying, you have to start an impeachment inquiry because otherwise people don't think you're serious. And B, you don't have as much claim vis-a-vis the courts. When you're just doing oversight, that's one standard. But when you kind of, you, you know, when you bring out the big I, the impeachment word, suddenly it's all, you got all sorts of power. Well, they did that and the president still said no. So you have a lot of people feeling, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a either deja vu or kind of uh, democratic process PTSD about what's going on here. But as I, as I have tried to explain in a few posts, for better or worse, our system puts a, lots of, puts a lot of obstacles in the way of compelling things from a sitting president. That's, that's just the reality. The president can abuse those things, and, and, and uh, President Trump did, but that's just that's a reality. And we can't even really blame the Constitution exactly, because the Constitution creates a remedy for a lawless president, for a, a, a president who is uh, sort of renegade within the Constitution. You impeach him and you remove him from office. Those founders guys, they, they covered this. They had something for this. And Congress, we can say it's Republicans, but the reality is Congress had two shots at that and they, and they, and they didn't do it. But the key is that a, an ex-president has virtually none of those powers, none of those obstacles between him and someone trying to investigate him or his cronies or his co-conspirators or whatever. So we're kind of coming down to pretty quick a decision. We're going to see whether this committee is really for real. Are they going to, are they going to do this thing where kind of, you know, some, some of the president's cronies basically just say no and they're, and they're, um, uh, um, you know, that's too bad or that they're kind of engaging and they kind of run out the clock for, or for whatever. So we're going to talk about that. That's one thing happening right, uh, right now. We still have the reconciliation stuff, which, my sense is that um, Democrats do not get how urgent it is to figure out what the final number is, pass it, and move on. So that's happening. And of course, we have the debt ceiling thing coming up again in, what is it, I guess six weeks? What, yeah, two, like a month and Early a half. December, yep. something like that. Yeah, so not, not too far away. Uh, in any case, uh, before we get started on that, let me remind you that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Temperatures are dropping, leaves are falling, the sun is getting half, the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But for everyone on Team Cold Brew, it's still ice coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your mittens, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off your your first order at Grady's... Oh, wait a second. 20, it actually says, the new copy says, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So it seems like you can do this like a multiple orders. It's like changing even as I... Even as I uh, even as I read it, so Kate, what what what's going on on all these different on all these different fronts? Well, I guess to kind of clean up on reconciliation, you know, right now both chambers are in Congress. The House came back briefly on Tuesday to pass the Senate's debt ceiling extension, so that's fully kicked down the the can is kicked down the road for a month and a half, like we said. But yeah, I mean, it feels kind of like. There was a reprieve when Manchin's top line number leaked and he started talking about that publicly. And it felt 
like you could feel a palpable break in the tension among Democrats because they were like, okay, finally, we have like a starting point, we can negotiate, we can move. And all of that kind of goodwill that was capped off with Biden visiting the House, that has drained away, it feels like. And now we're back to mounting frustration uh, at Mansion and Cinema because, you know, it, it keeps coming back to this top line number. I think the two of them are not necessarily on the same page from what we're hearing from like kind of trickle down reports. Neither of them will talk publicly about where they are. There was a quote um, that Politico had yesterday about cinema saying to a fellow Democratic senator, I'm not going to tell you my specifics. I'm not going to tell Pelosi or Schumer. The White House knows where I'm at, basically. We're just definitely just going to kind of flan the flames there. Um, so, you know, we, we're kind of stalled out again. And some parts, I think it's because I think part of the reason why it's so hard to come to a top line number is because it's not clear what programs Cinema and Mansion will not allow. And that's important because they're also insisting the package be paid for. So like with Cinema's, what now seems to be a total refusal to do the Medicare negotiating drug prices down thing at all. I mean, that was going to bring in a lot of money. And now that if she's taking that off the table, they've got to figure out something else. So I think the the top line negotiations are a bit more fraught than just I will accept two trillion or I will not. But it's it's kind of like we've been seeing, you know, it's this weird black box and it's hard to know what's going on. Most of the Democratic senators don't seem to know what's going on. And I don't know, after we got that memo that uh, the goofy memo that Manchin and Schumer both signed, it kind of brings up questions of, is this by design? You know, is this mansion just drawing it out as long as possible? One of his bullet points on the memo was, we will not start debating the reconciliation package until October 1st. What is, but I, well, I mean, it's obviously past October 1st now. Right. But, but I, I mean, we've just seen him already use this gambit to like kind of draw right. it out and seemingly to give Biff time to pass by itself and potentially mess up the process. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's it. Well, it's it's a very strange thing with the prescription drug price negotiation thing, because universally across the board, all public opinion, all, you know, subjective experience by lawmakers, that is the most popular thing anywhere, mm -hmm. not not in the build back better anywhere. It it it, it is it is. Um, it's the most popular proposal anywhere in American politics. And uh, to many of us, it's also a good proposal, but you know, not all popular proposals are actually good policy. Uh, and it, it, so it's, it's not even, um, you know, there's a certain argument may not be a good argument, but there's a certain argument about, you know, if you're doing, uh, you know, sending checks to people uh, without means testing, if you're doing, um, you know, subsidizing child care. There, there are definitely part people in the electorate who don't want to spend money on that. But this is like almost like unanimously popular. So it does seem like a good example of she is very tight with uh, the pharma lobby. And this is their kind of, you know, this is their kind of sine qua non thing. And so she's against it. And as you say, it's not just, um, you know, people think of it as like, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll be able to, um, you know, 
get prescription drugs for less, but it actually brings in a ton of money for the government. Or act, or I guess what it actually does is is it 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 reduces the cost of things the government's going to have one way or another. Uh, so this this um, to add insult to injury, this seems like a case where there's li- there's literally zero argument that this is about being moderate or trying to kind of, you know, thread the needle in Arizona. This is just her funders aren't aren't for this. And so she's against it. She's going to stop it. And it not only means that we're not going to get this kind of good policy thing, but it also dramatically, it also makes the making the numbers work for the whole bill much more difficult. Right. Yep, exactly. And she's off in like Europe right now doing a fund. I mean, which uh, another thing, like what? You're, like <laughs> you went to Europe to, to do fundraisers? Like, there, you know, that's not part of America. I mean, t- to be fair, lots of politicians raise, at least the idea is they're raising money among expats in Europe. So that's fine, you know, whatever. All I can... Like, I don't even have any sense of there's negotiations going on. It's so funny because I'm... Trying to find out through these like roundabout ways, you know, for instance, I've reported a bit on the CEPP, this, which is like the crux of Democrats climate plan, which it's still not at all clear if it's going to go through at all because Manchin's committee is in charge of crafting it. But, you know, I had some interviews this morning with some scientists who have been engaging with the people, you know, Senate staff and the people who are writing it, basically just trying to debug the program, make it as good as possible. And I was like, okay, so from those conversations, did you have any sense at what point of the process they're at right now? Like, are they debugging? Is Manchin on board with this? Is it almost done? And he basically said, I can tell you that it's somewhere between being dead and being passed. And I was like, okay, got it. He was like, I I have no idea. I have no notion of if they're just like working on this policy and then Manjin will swoop in and say, no, this is completely off the table for me, you know? And that's that's kind of the way a lot of this has been operating. And a, a re- relatively recent thing that's developed that I have kind of a conspiracy theory about um, is that Bernie Sanders has kind of taken on this role of being the mouthpiece for Democrats' discontent. And, you know, that's <laughs> a, a natural role for Bernie, who's crotchety at the best of times. Like, he cannot communicate without being kind of like grumpy or righteously angry about something. But he's been doing it in this very, very un-Bernie-ish way, you know, like holding full-fledged press conferences. He did a pen and pad with reporters on Friday that I went to, which is, you know, when a senator will just like come into the press gallery and sit there with reporters and, and, and answer their questions and stuff. And it's all this very Capitol Hill trappings type stuff that is usually not really Bernie's bread and butter. But he's been doing all these things primarily to, well, to do two things, to kind of articulate the huge special interest push against this legislation, which is classic Bernie, but also to call out Manchin and Cinema for not giving specifics, for saying things like it's, it's long past time where you need to say what you're against or what you're for. And my kind of my old conspiracy theory about it is I would not be surprised if he was acting on the marching orders of Schumer, of Biden, of kind of the leaders of the party, just because I think everyone else has been treating Manchin and Cinema with such kid gloves because they're so worried about pissing them off, about having them sink the package altogether, that I think 
the it, it might behoove the leaders not to be the ones in the bad cop role. You know what I mean? So it, it kind of feels like all of that has been outsourced to Bernie, who's a, a natural person to do it. And he's kind of there keeping his foot on the necks of these two during this seeming kind of stalled out time. You know, he did that pen right. and pad right before recess. He did a call with progressives uh, yesterday or the day before where he kind of reiterated the message. He's just kind of become the person that all these frustrations are channeling through whose drumbeat is we cannot make progress on this unless you tell us what we what you want. Yeah, I mean, both of them are awful and all that. I My fear here is that what is happening is that they've basically said, look, 1.5 is all we're doing. 1.5 is all we're doing. And the whether it's progressives or just the rest of the caucus, that they see the I mean, because I said it, I said in the intro, it's urgent. It is the political tide is turning against the president and his party because nothing is happening. The, the program is not really getting less popular, but inability to act demoralizes people. It's feeding into a, a it, it, it is what is bringing the president's numbers down. And the biggest driver of whether you have a good midterm or a bad midterm is the popularity of the president. So you really need to wrap this up. And I fear that what, again, whether you want to say it's the progressives or just kind of everyone who's not mansion and cinema are doing is they are telling themselves they're holding tough. You know, we're we're sticking to our guns, three point five, and and you know we know it's not going to be three point five, but we're you know we're we're not doing one point five, so we're gonna we need to end up at two point two or two or or whatever it is. But I fear what they are actually doing is delaying accepting the reality of the situation that those two are going to keep this to one point five trillion dollars, and that's awful. But it will not be more awful if you come to grips with that fact. In three months, it will be it will actually be more awful then. And, uh, you know, when I say, does no one get the urgency? Some of that is is just that it's a microcosm up there. And, and the people on Capitol Hill frequently lose track of the fact that that it is entirely the political dynamic outside of Capitol Hill that that defines reality for Capitol Hill. But the other thing is, if you want to move things ahead, the best way for you as a person who has a vote on Capitol Hill to move things ahead is to give up what you want. To say, okay, fine, 1.5 trillion, done, let's move ahead. And obviously no one wants to do that. And that's very understandable. But again, I fear this is not so, at this point, it is not so much holding tough as being in denial about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't know if the broader caucus has received any kind of solid answer on that. It's going to be 1.5. Like, I think the lockjam might be happening higher up the chain of command. I mean, when Biden came to the House, what, two weeks ago, he basically told them, you know, gird yourself, it's going to be $2 trillion. I was surprised that he gave specifics in that meeting, which leads me to believe that, you know, cinema has been talking to them or that they had some kind of idea that that's where it's going to be. Um, because honestly, I think if they came, if the, the White House was like, OK, it's two trillion dollars, we tried, we tried, we tried, they will not go higher, then it would move forward. 
But I think we're still at a place where maybe the White House hasn't accepted that or congressional leadership hasn't accepted that or hasn't gotten Mansion and Cinema to definitively say, okay, two trillion. Because right. I really don't think that, you know, even kind of the leaders of the caucus have been given that information or know that to be a fact. Yeah, no, that's possible. I'm not, I, I, I'm, my point is just collectively. Yeah. That there seems to be, or that I fear, I mean, look, I would love if they're kind of doing a hardball negotiation right now, and we're going to find out in a week, it's 2.1 trillion, and you pass it all through, and awesome, great, fantastic. Uh, but time is is really working against the Democrats right now. Mm -hmm. That is the That is the truth. And each day that goes by, the chances of the whole thing blowing up get higher. And when I say the whole thing, I mean both bills, everything. The chances of that get higher. And the chances of a bad election result in in November 2022 also get higher. And you're, you know, I what is it? We're a couple weeks out from this uh, gubernatorial election in uh, Virginia. And on its own, uh, on its own, if you don't live in Virginia, I mean, you know, whatever. It's not the end of the, you know, the fate of the country is not is not uh, bound up in who's the governor of Virginia, but it's a sign. And right now, it seems very clear that that race is pretty tight in large measure because Democrats are demoralized. It's having an effect. And it may also be having an effect because a lot of Democrats, going back to the other point we, we, um, we mentioned, are thinking that they're elected officials are again going to get rolled on this subpoena thing. Most people aren't paying too close attention to that. That's more of a kind of a, um, you know, people who are really, really plugged into politics, but it's also playing a role. So they don't have a lot of time. Time is really of the essence. They have to get this done. Yeah. And I mean, they're basically without any kind of real deadline right now. They have October 31st, basically as when the this like surface highway transportation extension expires, but they could easily renew that. It's not it's not really it's more kind of an arbitrary this we would like to have things moving by this point kind of thing. But I do think on the timing point, when they get back next week, you know, we're gonna see. Is the whole week in the pass and all we're gonna get from lawmakers, negotiations are ongoing. We haven't, you know, then someone's holding it up, right? Someone at that point is the reason why it's not going forward. And my understanding to this point has been because Manchin has articulated that he likes the idea of drawing out reconciliation or not doing it until 2022. So he's got no beef with a very slow, agonizing process. Who knows ever what cinema is thinking or wants to do. And that's been my understanding to this point. But you're right. I mean, there, there does come a point where... They could, the rest of the caucus could say, okay, we're doing 1.5. And I don't, I think Mansion and Cinema would deign to allow that to happen. But I wonder, I mean, 1.5 is just almost a smack in the face to progressives, you know? I mean, they came in wanting six. <laughs> it's just, it's nowhere near the halfway point. It's so adding insult to injury of what they already see as like robbing people of help and money and a safety net. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of, a lot of arguments on the specifics of all these different 
you know, all these different programs that are involved and, and, and they're various, right? There are lots of different, I mean, and this, this goes back to one of the other, uh, kind of agonies of this process is that when you've got a lot of popular things, you should be passing them one after another. Right. What could I do a climate thing? Ah, now we're going to do, um, you know, a child tax credit. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do that. Um, we're going to do, you know, universal pre-K or whatever. But we're not even, you know, we're not even getting into the specifics because they're, they're, uh, you know, they're backed into this, into this reconciliation thing. But what you just described again is what I worry about. That that is a that is a very bitter pill, but that may be the reality of the situation. And saying how bitter it is does not make it less bitter. Doesn't necessarily change the equation. And again, I, I fear that what they are telling themselves is holding tough is is denial. Right. And the other kind of fruitless push happening in Congress. Uh, as we just learned, Schumer said that he is going to file cloture on the Freedom to Vote Act next week, which sets up the vote to surpass the Republican filibuster will be Wednesday. The co-sponsors of the bill met on Thursday, and I talked to some of them afterwards. Warnock told me that they had finally gotten Republican proposals, basically edits to the legislation from Republicans who say they're potentially open to voting for it. Um, he called them, quote, inadequate. So it doesn't seem like Democrats love them. Uh, but he wants to debate those on the floor. And Tester told me they're only currently talking to five or six Republicans, which is kind of like, well, you know, they gave Manchin a month after this was introduced to basically court Republicans. They went with him to some of the meetings. Um, you know, the whole idea being like everything with Manchin and the filibuster has been. We just need to show him that their Republican support for voting protections is non-existent. And then he will give up the ghost and let us reform the filibuster. You know, that's kind of been the driving notion all term. And now that I think they've gotten to the point where they're like, OK, well, we gave you the time to have these conversations. Now we're going to bring it to the floor. I see no way that it doesn't fail on Wednesday. But, you know, my naive Kate earlier in the term would be like, and that'll show Manchin because he cares about voting rights. And old and cynical Kate now is like, and then nothing will happen and it'll stall out until people are like, again, another push, which will crash up against the filibuster. And that's that. Yeah, I I, I don't know, because I Part of me has this thought, or I had this thought more earlier in the year, that, you know, Manchin is not stupid. He sees the same reality that we see. He may not react to it the same way, but he, I, he knows they're not going to get 10 Republican votes to move this thing to the floor. Um, and so the fact that he seems to have spent a month or so rewriting the thing, lobbying colleagues, blah, 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 blah that why would he waste his time? You know, does he know, does he, does he have some rabbit to pull out of his hat in terms of getting some Republican co-sponsors? Uh, or is, you know, all the things we've said, but these, there's one way you can do these votes and have it building towards something where, I don't know, you're getting the public upset that, that the important stuff won't pass, blah, 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 blah. Uh, or maybe you're getting your Democratic colleagues 
mansion and cinema upset, like, oh, they're going to turn against the filibuster. But if neither of those things are happening, you just start to look stupid. Like, why are we doing this again? Like, okay, it's going to, we're going to have the vote. It's going to get 50 votes. And that is it. So what's the point? And I think that's, I think that's the reality. Yeah. So moving on to uh, the January 6th committee, like Josh previewed in the intro, we're today, since we're recording a day after we usually do on Thursday, we're kind of butting up against the, the, the Rubicon, the point of no return, I guess, because today we're supposed to have Bannon and Patel uh deposed for the committee. And then tomorrow, Scavino and Meadows are scheduled. Um, So we're basically reaching the point where if they don't show today, they are not complying with a subpoena. And the committee has been previewing for a couple weeks now that if, you know, if these dates come and go, they're going to refer these people for criminal contempt of Congress uh, and get the ball rolling there, which entails committee vote, full house vote and then should the DOJ you know take up the case it moves to the courts so that's put a lot of pressure slash questions around is this you know will Garland kind of step up how aggressive will he be and and Josh I know you had a post about this so curious to see where your head's at about it I, you know, I, I, as, as you suggested, I'm assuming that, that the people in the house are going to pull this trigger They're that they are serious about this because they have, if they're not, they've put themselves in a terrible position because they've threatened and threatened and threatened and say, and said, we're going to do it, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't know why they would do that if they're not going to pull that trigger and, uh, they certainly should pull that trigger and all, you know, all, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm fairly confident they will. I have much less I just don't know about 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 Garland. I think that um on other related matters uh, under Garland things that things that go to um you know a general aggressiveness in a political context things about uh things about the ex-president, things about January 6th. I would say that that most people who've been following this stuff are kind of not sure they think he's doing a bad job, but they're a little underwhelmed about about how he's approached these things. And I'm I'm concerned. I I is he going to turn around and and I mean because what's the what is like? Let's say, and this is you know, uh, Kate and I are recording this uh, between noon and one o'clock, give or take, on uh, Thursday afternoon. My understanding is that that. You know, Bannon and I don't know if it's Bannon and Patel, which which of these guys, but Bannon and someone else supposed to show up this afternoon. Let's assume that that uh, the House people make an immediate referral. And and if not immediate, why not? I mean, we know what's happening. You know, what's the what's the point? And something similar with uh, with Garland. This isn't something new coming down the pike. We've everybody knows what's happening here. Um, I don't think there's. There's no point for some like internal deliberation process. You know, you might cross a few T's, but I don't know. I I I really hope that they will that they will act on this, that he will act on this in an expeditious way. Because, you know, I I've done a few posts recently where I've talked about you can't act in a way that makes a mockery of yourself. 
And you can't act in a way that makes you an object of contempt. And we are in a situation now where when a normal person gets subpoenaed, they've got to show up. You can't just say fuck off. And there are, as I said, a complex set of reasons when it's a sitting president. It gets more complicated. That's not the case anymore. And so if the if it's really the case that the Congress of the United States cannot investigate when there is an armed attack on the seat of government, what can they do? And and you make a mockery of the republic's ability, the constitution's ability to defend itself. And so I don't I don't know what Garland's gonna do. I I you know, I, I fear he is one of these kind of uh, you know, kind of kick the tires. We have to be we have to be, you know, conscious of the precedents we set, all that kind of stuff. Um, all of which is those are all very important cautions. But when the house is on fire, you have to you have to move deliberately. And the house is on fire. Yeah, I mean, I I would add here that this is not like a slam dunk case. I mean, so that's kind of separate from whether or not Garland should be aggressive about it. But, you know, the law that kind of governs criminal contempt uh, of Congress, I had looked it up. There hasn't seemed to be a successful prosecution under it since the late 70s. Um, and as we've kind of seen, these questions that involve presidential privilege, no matter that in this case, it seems a bit more far removed, you know, things like that. They don't they haven't been moving very quickly through the courts. I mean, that's what's kind of bedeviled Democrats before, even though, you know, the narrow kind of you defied your subpoena question does seem rather open and shut. Um, well, why is it that what is it about the law that that there haven't been success. Why haven't there been successful prosecutions? Is that that the courts just don't like the law, or what's the what's the background there? Um, I mean, it seems that like I think part of the reason why there haven't been the successful prosecutions is that like deals are often struck kind of before you get to the end. So I think that's part of it as well. Um, we do have this this piece that I'm sure listeners are aware of, where Bannon is claiming executive privilege, saying that Trump asked him to invoke privilege, uh, even though he was not employed by the White House for years before January 6th. Um, you know, so I mean, Schiff even has a bill that requires courts to decide questions of presidential privilege, like that would speed up that process. So, you know, they can't kind of use the courts to drag this stuff out. Uh, but, you know, this is all just kind of weediness there's another the there's another issue here and this is i i am i'm disappointed it has not gotten more play in the, in the in the news reporting about this an ex president doesn't have executive privilege the way that 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 this works is the presidency has executive privilege so the current president it's up to the current president uh, what they want to invoke privilege about. This is this is very straightforward in the law, um, and obviously Joe Biden is the president now. In practice, since presidents have institutional um, 
privileges they are trying to protect that that usually transcend partisan differences, a current president, notwithstanding the party of the previous president, will often back that person up. And the way the the way the the way the system works is an ex-president has to basically ask the current president, say, hey, I want to exert executive privilege, and the current president does it on their behalf. Now, as I understand this, there's a particular law that has to do with, you know, stuff's over at the National Archives. I think if the current president says no, then under that law, the ex-president can sort of has 30 days to complain or something like that. But that is actually a case where even that law, I think the the constitutionality of that law itself is dubious. An ex-president does not have these powers. An ex-president, the, the current president is the one who is in charge of the federal government, is in, you know, the, the, the executive branch, making decisions to defend it, to defend the office of the presidency. So this is pretty open and shut. The president, let alone someone who hasn't even worked for the president in years, who is, who is in constitutional terms, just someone he talks to on the phone. <laughs> This is all like bullshit, basically. The, 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 the only place that it gets a little more complicated is if you're talking about making uh, this guy Cash Patel talk. Now, he's in charge of his mouth. Someone needs to compel him, right? But in a lot of these cases, we're talking about the, the records of the federal government. Those are owned by the federal government. They are literally in the possession of the federal government. And Joe Biden runs the federal government. So you can, you can, president can kind of keep resisting, but Joe Biden can just walk over to the National Archives and say, here, here they are. That's really how it works. They own the records. Trump doesn't have these records. There may be some other secret records he kind of kept in his back pocket, but these are the records of the federal government of the United States. And Joe Biden is in charge of those records. Possessions nine tenths of the law. And that's most of what we're talking about here. So all of this is, this is all pretty open and shut. The president has no privilege. The presidency does, but that's up to Joe Biden. And, and Donald Trump knows where to get Joe, you know, he knows where to call if he wants to ask for Joe Biden's help. And I would say so far, uh, the Biden administration batted down Trump's attempt to keep a certain tranche of documents shielded from Congress that's at the National Archives. Uh, we just saw two letters from White House counsel saying, you know, with with these documents, we are, you know, not going to exert uh, executive privilege on his behalf. Now, are there documents that they that they said that they have said they're open to to uh extending him that courtesy? They basically said this is a case by case basis. Uh, you know, we're eager to work with January 6 investigators, but, you know, kind of put guardrails on the thing to be like, don't take this as a carte blanche for whatever you want, basically. Right. So what about but everything that has come before them, uh, they have they have said, OK, right. yeah, right. That makes sense. I mean, and look, they, they're uh, any any president, any presidency they're not just going to want to say, oh, yeah, you can see any, absolutely anything you want. So that's understandable. But again, this is, we are, we're collectively making a mockery of 
the republic's ability to defend itself, of Congress's ability. Congress is the first branch of government. This isn't some kind of random fishing expedition. This is literally an armed attack on the Congress of the United States, the physical presence, the seat of government, the actual physical Congress of the United States by a violent mob led by the president. If the Congress cannot investigate that and get access to everything it needs to find out what happened, then the whole thing is kind of a joke. Yep. It's as simple as that. Okay, let's take some questions. Um, First, we have a question from Ken, who's talking about the Senate Judiciary Committee report that came out with like kind of surprisingly little fanfare, I think, uh, last week. Um, Despite the missing pieces, it's pretty unequivocal and bombshelly. Is it completely out of the question for Democrats to launch a new third impeachment process? Um, And he goes on to say, you know, this seems to be the only way to bar Trump from seeking office again. Isn't in that context, isn't it worth it? I mean, I would say no. Just because we know the result of that impeachment and uh, he will not be. I mean, so, you know, a third failed impeachment or a third failed impeachment trial uh, that just makes the process look stupid. If somehow you could actually have him barred from seeking office in the future, that might be worth you know, kind of going through that. But since we know it's not going to happen, why, why are we even, you know, th- there's, there's, the country does not have time right now for doing things on principle. The country really needs results on all these fronts. So I see, I let alone the fact that I think people would laugh. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, I'm generally of more of a get caught trying camp that I think Oftentimes, Democrats are like, well, that's not going to work. So we're not even going to try and end up shooting themselves in the foot. But in this instance, I'm I'm with you. I mean, it's just Democrats have been doing a lot of things for messaging benefit that won't work. And we are getting to a point, especially with all the reconciliation stuff, where it just looks like incompetence at some point, regardless of the fact that the numbers are stacked against them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this one. Um, okay. Okay, second question from Jared, who says, first off, can we just have a round of applause for John Tester? A Montana Democrat has just as much reason to be a pain in the ass as one from West Virginia, but he isn't. Why? Does he have some other command of Montana politics? Is he less insecure and needing to showboat or does he just operate more in the background? Um, Which I really liked this question because I think that John Tester of this term has been absolutely like fascinating to watch. You know, uh, there was one quote, I don't know if you saw it, but a reporter asked him a question with the framing of like, are you going to be with Manchin on this? And he responded something like, be with Manchin? Are you kidding me? My wife would divorce me. Like he's not even kind of tiptoeing around this. And I think, I think what's important to keep in mind is that it's not that he never breaks stride with the party. I think he just does it in like a logical way that just doesn't stick in the crawl the way that Manchin's does. Like, you know, he voted against the 15% federal minimum wage boost. Uh, He never committed to Biden's alcohol tobacco explosives guy who ultimately got pulled. I mean, he does kind of take a stand when he thinks he needs to, but 
his is just it seems to be a lot more kind of ideologically based and not so much what Manchin's doing, which a lot of the time feels like I must take a stand against the bulk of the agenda against like not really picking off pet issues, but more being like, where is the party wanting to go? How do I obstruct that? That shows me to be bipartisan. And I think there was this really good quote from Tester in a a profile just written about him where he says, it's hard for Chuck right now dealing with the Bernie Warren faction and the Mansion Cinema faction. I don't want to add to that. They're going to hear me complain and bitch and holler and scream when I don't like it, but it's not going to be in front of you. And I'm going to be very specific in what I want. And I think that really just kind of boils it down well. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly. I mean, look, the, fir- the first thing to say here is that John Tester's great. And I, and I say that in the sense of like, I just think he's great, but also he is a very canny politician, mm-hmm. notwithstanding all the, oh, I'm just back from the tractor, kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of talk. Um, Montana's a very red state. And he has, I think he is now in his third term. Um, I think he's 2006, 12 and 18. So he's, he's doing something right. Um, and, you know, that's what a centrist or moderate actually is. There are some places he cannot be with the rest of the caucus on gun stuff, on some cultural stuff. That is a, that is, that's just a reality. And his party gives him, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of running room because they know he's from a pretty conservative state. But the basic difference is that he's not, he is seldom or never trying to wrong foot the party in public to make a point about himself. There, there's, as you said, there's, and, and, and if you look at all these negotiations, it's also, it's always, you know, kind of mansion and cinema, but it's usually testers there, you know, kind of testers in the mix. What do we need to, you know, need to do to kind of make sure he can be with it. But he clearly approaches things that he is trying to allow his party to get things done, basically the things they want to do. And he's, when he can't help, he can't help, but he's not trying to his shtick is not, as I said, wrong footing the party to make points about himself. Now, I will say one other thing. Uh, in the original question, the questioner said, you know, a Republican state like West Virginia. That's actually not true. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, Montana usually goes for the Republicans, maybe by 10 points or something like, you know, a solid margin. It's a whole different universe in West Virginia in the last several years. Trump, I think both times, and I think this actually goes back to uh, certainly the second Obama election, maybe the first, it's like two to one. It it is, it's, it's not close. There is a substantial democratic electorate in Montana. I don't know if it's like, you know, uh, 45, 55, maybe 40, 60, but 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 Democrats get like 25% of the presidential vote in West Virginia. So just to be fair, Manchin, it's a different reality. They're not the same. I mean, again, big story. John Tester's great. But those are not equally Republican states. I think that's true. But I also think, I mean, how many Democratic senators from red states did we see felled in you know, 2018 in the past few cycles. Like, I think you're right that uh, Republicans win bigger in West Virginia than Montana, 
but I don't think Tester is looking generally at like much safer of a seat than Manchin is when it comes time to vote. Look, I I agree that that is why I said he is a very canny politician because he is he works very well with his caucus Mm -hmm. um, when he does have to oppose his party on things. He doesn't like, you know, rush out to meet the press to make a big deal about it. And he's gotten reelected. I mean, 2012, what 2012 was kind of a good year in the sense that, you know, had Obama. um, It wasn't a midterm. He's running with running with, you know, we kind of say in retrospect now, popular president didn't seem so clear cut at the time. And that was a pretty close election. 2018, he kind of got, you know, kind of got lucky, right? The 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 sort of the anti-Trump midterm. Um so he's been lucky, but he's uh we did um Claire McCaskill go down in 2018? Did she lose in 20? I think she Pretty did. Sure, I think that yeah. was tw- yeah, 2018. Uh, <laughs> he's a good politician. Yep. It's not easy to pull that off. That is not um if if memory serves, I think Obama came close to winning Montana in 2008. But he didn't. I may possibly I'm wrong. Maybe he won. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Came close. It's a Republican state. You got to be you got to be you got to be pretty canny to pull that off. And he's done it three times. Okay. And our last question is from Scott, who his question kind of uh, is in line with your your mantra on time. Josh, he says uh, you mentioned today on the site that a Halloween deadline is a fake deadline, but don't Dems need an actual deadline? Nothing gets done in Washington until the end. Um, we recently learned of Manchin's deal not to negotiate until the beginning of October. Uh, is there any way to force a deadline on this? Um, a senator could die. A natural disaster could distract everyone. Some geopolitical event could happen. Uh, there are myriad ways this goes on forever as nothing. So what can Democrats do? Basically, what you're saying. How do you ratchet up the the pressure? Yeah, they need a deadline, and you know, a senator dies suddenly. You, the, the deadline's behind you, right? <laughs> there, that's not a deadline. That's a deadline in the past that you didn't know about. And you know, geopolitical event. We had that. That was Afghanistan, and it was like yes, misportrayed, but it had a big effect. It weakened the president, and that is that has had a big effect here. Uh, you know, I saw uh, Representative Jayapal uh, make a statement yesterday where she said something to the effect of, "Look, you know, October thirty first isn't set in stone. We've, you know, we can repass that highway stuff. Uh, there's no rush. And uh, look, I, I, she's fighting the good fight here. It's all great, but she's wrong. <laughs> Time is not on their side, and I really hope." they grasp that because yes, you do need a deadline. I mean, we've all seen kind of like, um, I mean, maybe this is just uh, showing my own cards, but it's like, in, it's like when you're in school and you're, oh, the, the term papers do and, and you're kind of up against it. And suddenly the teacher's like, okay, I'm giving you an extra week. And I was like, ah, great. Going to go out and party this weekend. And then suddenly it's, it's, you're, you're down to one day again and you didn't do anything with it. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what's happened here. Kind of like, you know, uh, whatever that was a week and a half ago, uh, everything goes down to the wire. And then suddenly, you know, Mansion and kind of cinema seems like they're negotiating and everybody kind of, you know, took a deep breath. And suddenly it's kind of, we're just floating in, in, in Nowheresville again. 
Right. It's really urgent, and I hope they get that. And I and it's not clear to me that they do. Well, I I would I think Jayapal probably said that because I think she's afraid that there'll be another push to pass the bipartisan bill come the end of October and reconciliation still won't be anywhere and we'll be in the same scary situation we were in. But, but I mean, I agree with you. And I think if they wait until the last minute to do this, they're just setting themselves up for a situation where, again, they got to figure out how to do reconciliation, how to do it in tandem with bipartisan at the same time that the debt ceiling is coming to a head and a government shutdown is looming. And I know you're totally right there. I mean, they're college kids with a term paper every time. But my God, if you can get reconciliation done just like a little bit early, I mean, they're just going to be clearing their plates in such a big way. And then they're going to have to have these other fights anyway. You know, it's just it's setting themselves up for such a unnecessarily higher pressure situation when you're going to have a more demoralized base than you've got now. And the midterms are going to be truly right around the corner. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's right. It, 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 a, the biggest driver right now of the president's diminished popularity is the strong impression that he cannot get things done. And Afghanistan was key in his, I mean, look, here, here's the progression of events here. Everybody's kind of feeling pretty good in the spring. We're getting this COVID thing behind us. We're moving forward. Then you have Delta and all the different things. And uh, you still have all the supply chain stuff. Uh, you've got, we're back in COVID. Everybody's kind of, the country got in a bad mood of, ah. Uh, I thought we were moving forward. We're not moving forward. We're still stuck. What happened? And Afghanistan, I think, answered that question for a lot of people. Ah, here's what happened. Joe Biden's not up to this task. He can't, he, he's, he's a nice guy, but he can't get it done. Now, I think that is a, a wrong analysis on, on, a, on several different fronts. But that is what sent his popularity into a tailspin. And what we are seeing now is every day this same thing about they're, they're trying to pass this thing and they're talking about it and nothing happens. That is hurting him a lot. And, you know, we talk about the midterms as, oh, it's, you know, they're on the ballot. Midterms are about the president. So... Those people on the Hill are going to pay the price if people still have that impression of the president. Yeah. And I mean, it sucks because it's hard. And sometimes they'll say, you know, 50, 50 person majority, you know, and it's like, totally, I get it. But you, you got to figure it out. I mean, before Georgia, probably a lot of people were guessing that there would be a Republican Senate, you know, so it's, it's better than at one point we thought it would be. So, I mean, you got to got to just get it done. Especially just I I think most people are unable to comprehend the difference between trillions of dollars even though of course that has practicable effects and the progressives are absolutely right that Mansion and Cinema are like, you know, robbing them of these transformative programs. That's so that's definitely right. But the you're going to have a bill stuffed with a lot of programs, a lot of programs that they're going to be able to sell, regardless of if it only comes in at $1.5 And I mean, I'm, I'm with you. It's a, such a bitter pill. But at some point, 
it, the choice is between that and more months of this. There's There's got to be a choice. Yeah, I, I think there has to be, they have to figure out very quickly. And it's hard to figure out because it's hard to figure out things you don't want to figure out. Yeah. But they need to figure out if 1.5 trillion is 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 really what this is going to be, and if it is, they should just they should just pass it, and just 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 move through. And you know, uh, Kate and I were talking before we started recording that one of the things uh, there was one article in Insider this morning saying that what the Democrats are going to say is, you know, we'll come back to some of this stuff in in, a, in another reconciliation bill in 2022. Now, you know, things get harder, not easier. As you're moving towards an election, especially one you don't think you're going to do well in, but whatever, you don't know the future. You can say, you know, you can say that, uh, and you should say that. And again, they've just got to figure it out and 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 move forward. And as I said, I fear that uh, these people with the best of intentions have rebranded denial as hanging tough, and it's going to hurt them. So. They need to they need to move on. And I would like to add that at least I am not saying this from the perspective of progressives always ask too much and don't get it. And they're being unrealistic because I think that is such like a a classic D.C. bias that the moderates and centrists are the reasonable starting point. The progressives aren't. And that has specifically this term just not been true. Yeah, it hasn't been 100 percent has not been true at all. This is this is not a matter of like it was unrealistic or you asked or you're being unreal. It's none of those things. It is the reality that there are only 50 votes. Right. And you can say till you're blue in the face that Joe Manchin and especially Kirsten Cinema is terrible, even when you've, you know, uh, uh, stamped a big terrible on their forehead, they're still going to have those votes. So this is, this is not, you know, they've got a compromise too. Those two are doing no compromising, but they have the vote. Right. Okay. On that positive note, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com if you use promo code TPM. All All right. right. See Later. You next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor in chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.